Hello and welcome to my talk about AMAT Armor Curtain. My name is René Frank Gruber and I'm going to tell you something about exploit development and especially about how to bypass different mitigation techniques of AMAT in the next minutes. So let's have a look at the plan for today. Uh, first of all, I will give you a short introduction about my person and my company. After that, we come to the basics. So I will introduce uh, concepts like uh, address-based randomization or data execution prevention to you. I will also talk about the Firefox vulnerability, which I will use during this talk to demonstrate all the bypass techniques on top of it. After that, we come to the first Emmet-related chapter. It's about finding or locating Emmet delay in memory. And we will see why this is important in this chapter. And after that, I come to the advanced code reuse technique, uh, which is a technique which is already public well known by exploit developers. But I think if you are trying to talk about how Emmet can be bypassed, this technique is really useful. And that's why I've included it here. After that, we come to the different mitigation techniques of Emmet. So today, I uh, will talk about the five different ROP protections, so the return-oriented programming protections, and about address-based EIF uh, protection and how we can bypass uh, these mitigation techniques. At the end, I will give you some final thoughts and uh, show you the demonstration, and you also have time to ask me some questions. As already mentioned, my name is René Frank Gruber. I'm working since about two years at, uh, as a security consultant at SecConsult, and I'm also currently a student at the Technical University of Vienna. I'm doing there my bachelor thesis about exploitation, and I hereby really want to thank my professor, Christian Platzer, Sorry. <laughs> that he uh, gave me uh, this possibility to write about such a great topic. I also have here one slide about my company, SecConsult. I think the most interesting part for you is that we are currently hiring. So if you are, want to work as a security consultant in Germany, uh, just drop me a mail or just go to our website or come to me after the talk. Yeah, basics. Exploitation was quite easy 15 years ago. So in the year 2000, if you have to write a buffer overflow, a stack-based buffer overflow, you just had to pad until to reach the return address, overwrite the return address with a hard-coded address pointing again to the stack, and place there your shellcode, and the shellcode will be executed, and everything is working. Nowadays, everything becomes a little bit harder, because we have many, many different protections there, which must be bypassed. So uh, on the left side, you see a picture of some of the names of these protections. This is not a complete list, but from the perspective of the attacker, we have to bypass all these mitigation techniques. And the two biggest uh, ones here are data execution prevention, DEP, and address-based automation, ESLR. Uh, just a quick question, who of you knows data execution prevention? Just raise your hand. Okay, that's good. And who of you knows address-based automation? Okay, so just go very quickly over this, and then we move on. The idea of address-based automation is that everything is loaded at a random address uh, in the memory. So if I start Firefox or any application two times, everything, the old code sections, old data sections, will be loaded at a random address. So, so from the perspective of the attacker, I don't know anything where the data is in memory. And the idea of data execution prevention on the other side is that data uh, which is stored on the stack or on the heap, there should just be data stored, which is read and writeable, but not executable. So that means I can just make uh, assign the, uh, the pages as read and writeable, but not as executable. That means if I store my shellcode on the stack and try to execute it, it would just segmentation fault because this page is not marked as executable. And yes. 
The typical way to bypass data execution prevention is to use a technique which is called return on data programming. That means I'm just returning to already existing code in the program. So I'm just executing one to three instructions which are currently there in the program and then return to the next one to three instruction instructions and then chain all these instructions together to build new logic in the program. For example, logic to disable data execution prevention. And here we see why it's so hard to bypass address-based normalization and data execution prevention together, because if ESLR is also there, this address of this already existing code is randomized, so I don't know where this already existing code is stored in memory. So the typical way is to first somehow bypass address-based randomization. For example, I can turn the vulnerability into an information dis uh, disclosure vulnerability by making partial overrides or overwriting the, the length of string fields or something like that, and then leak the base address of one module, and based on this module, I can then develop a ROP chain to disable data execution prevention. You will see this concept uh, in some slides, some later slides, uh, when I show you the Firefox vulnerability. In this case, I have chosen uh, the Firefox Array Reduce Write vulnerability, which is a little bit older one, so it's from 2011, because then I can show you uh, the exploitation code without risking that any attacker uh, can abuse this code here. Uh, the exploit also works very reliable against all different kinds of operating systems, so starting from Windows XP, Service Zero, until Windows 8.1. And we can bypass address-based randomization and data execution prevention. We are not doing stuff like heap spraying, because heap spraying is one technique which can be used to defeat address-based randomization, because the idea is that we just store the data in the complete memory range. So we're just spraying the data to the complete memory range. That means you can use any address, because the data is everywhere. And the problem here is that the browser would freeze for some seconds uh, while we are doing the spraying. And that means that the victim could notice that an attack is ongoing. In this case, if the victim goes to my website, he really notes nothing. So there is no browser freeze, the browser is not crashing, it just looks like a normal website and is just infected with my uh, payload. Unfortunately, I don't have enough time to talk about all details of this uh, vulnerability today, so if you want to find out more, just have a look at this great talk by VMB Howard Davis. Uh, it's, called a tale of, it's called A Tale of Two Firefox Bugs, you can find it on YouTube, or just have a look at my bachelor work, which I will release in uh, two or three weeks. <laughs> uh, for everyone who does not know the array reduce function, this function can be used to invoke a callback functions on all elements of Sorry, give me one second. So sorry. <laughs> yeah. uh, for everyone who doesn't know the reduce function, it can be used to invoke a callback function in all elements of an array. So let's say that the callback function uh, is the print function. It would just go to the first element, invoke this function, so print the first element, and then go to the next one, print this one, and so on until it reaches the last uh, element. And the array reduce write function on the other side just say, uh, starts with the last element, so with the right element, and goes from right to left. And starting with the last element means that we start with the element at index length minus one. And the problem here is that in JavaScript, we can just set the length field to any value which we like. In this case, if I set the length field to a very huge value, like uh, C0 is in this case, uh, the problem is then that the index is declared as a signed integer, and that means that index can wrap down to a negative number. So if I assign uh, length a very huge value, index becomes negative, and that means I can access elements outside the scope of the array. And you will see this here on the next slide. So 
If I store something at index zero in the array, it would come up here in memory. If I store something at index one, it comes here. You see that this array here has a capacity of six elements, so we can store six elements here. And if I try to access uh, index zero, it says, yeah, this is allowed because six is smaller than the capacity of the array. So this is allowed. Another example is uh, if I try to access the last element, this is also allowed. But if I try to access higher elements, elements outside the scope of this array, this is not allowed. Uh, but if I use a negative index, this will be always allowed because only the, the upper boundary is checked. So now I can access elements which are stored in front of this, uh, this array. Here. If I uh, allocate an array in JavaScript, you would end up with this data structure here. So we have here this data structure, and I have different fields describing this array. And as I already mentioned, if I store something at index zero, it would come here. At index one, it would come to this location here. And every entry consists of eight bytes. So the first four bytes are used to store the data entry. For example, if I store an integer, the integer value would be stored here. And the second uh, two bytes, uh, four bytes are used to store uh, the data type. For example, if it's a string, if it's an object, if it's an integer, and so on. For, uh, if it would be a string, it would just say here, it's a string, and the four, first four bytes would be used as a pointer pointing to the string data structure. You also see here that we, this, uh, this array here has a fixed size, so for example, I can just store 10 elements in this case here. And if I try to, uh, to store more elements than these 10 elements, this green array would be relocated, this is the slots array. So it would come here to a new memory location, which is bigger, to fulfill the request. And then we, obtain, uh, we have here a pointer, and this pointer is always pointing to the actual used uh, slots array. So typically it's pointing to this location, but if it's going to be relocated, it will be pointing to this new used memory. Uh, now come to the first attack. So what I have done is I just relocated this array to, uh, to, to an allocation of uh, the fixed size 512 bytes. And then I just have made many, many allocations of the same size before making this relocation. And that means that I have full control over the memory which is in front of this slots array. So the blue marked memory here is under my control. And I can set it to any values which I like. If I now use the length field of C0 and so on, it would become the negative index minus one. That means I'm just accessing, working with this memory which is under my control. And here I can just set the data type to FF, FF, FF005. This 05 here means it's a uh, string. That means the first pointer, the first D word, is interpreted as a string pointer. I can then just say this pointer is uh, pointing again to my own data here. And there specify um, fields of the string, like uh, the length of the string or the address of the string. And, and I can just say that this address is pointing to the memory which I want to read, because then this code returns me a string pointer, and I can just read from this string. You see here, this is the implementation of this code in JavaScript. You see, this is the length field. I just set at this location here the length, then invoke the reduce write function give the leak function as callback function. This is this function here. Then the current element, which is passed as argument, is the element which is under my full control. I just verify if the data type is really string. And if it's a string, I just set here my variable, throw an exception to exit this reduce function here, 
um, just catching it here, and just returning the string, and I now can read from the string the memory which I want to read. So now able to read any memory in this program. The next step is to get code execution. The, I can achieve this by just changing the data type from a string to an object, because every object has, at its start, a pointer to the virtual table, and inside this virtual table, virtual table Uh, virtual function pointers are stored. So if you go a little bit back, if the data type of current would be object, I would invoke with this line here the type of function of it. So it would just follow the object pointer, then follow the virtual table pointer inside this table, add this relative offset from the start to the virtual to the type of function pointer, and then just invoke this uh, type of function. And since I have full control over the, point, uh, over the pointer or the object, I also have full control over the virtual table pointer. That means I can just point it, let it point to my own data and can let the type of function point to my shellcode and execute it. In this case, I have just chosen the setElement uh, function instead because it has some benefits, uh, which allows me that the browser will not crash uh, after executing this vulnerability, after triggering this vulnerability. So the attack looks like this. I'll just change the data type to 07, which is the data type of an object. That means the first keyword is interpreted as an object pointer. If I then follow the virtual table pointer, I come here. This is the relative offset, which is added inside this virtual table to reach the set element function pointer. And if I invoke this function, I can just let it point to my own shellcode, and the shellcode will be executed. At the end, you see that I have stored the opcode C3, which is the opcode for a return. So this opcode here would just return from the setElement function, and Firefox would just continue execution as would nothing had happened. The problem with this is that um, this attack would just work against older systems, like Windows XP Service Pack Zero, because the shellcode is, in this case, stored on the heap, and because of data execution prevention, the heap is not marked as executable. That means we have first have to somehow disable data execution prevention by using a ROP chain. And the problem of the ROP chain is that uh, the next location, the next address of the instructions, is taken from the location where the stack pointer is pointing to, so from the stack. And as the name implies, stack pointer is typically pointing to the stack, but we don't have control over this location there. So we cannot place the other address of the next instruction. We only have control over this red marked area here on the heap, and that means that we first have, with the first gadget, have to somehow shift the stack pointer from the stack to the heap to be able to control the address of the next gadget. So we have to find one such gadget. And we can do this by looking into the Firefox module. If you have a look here, this code is from the Firefox module. You see here, uh, this is a jump operation, and this jump operation is stored with using two bytes. So the 72 says it's a jump, and C9 would be the relative offset, which goes upwards because it's bigger than 80. And the problem is that using return data programming, we don't have to jump to the, or return to the start of this instruction. We can just return into the middle of it and reinterpret uh, this code here as a new instruction. So we can build new instructions which are not there, but just jumping into the middle of already existing instructions. So if you have a look here, if I just jump to the start of it, the C9 would be now interpreted as a leaf instruction, and leaf is exactly doing what I want to do because it takes the content of the base pointer register and moves it into the stack pointer. And the base pointer is currently pointing to this red area from, which is under my control. 
I have here a quick digression how, about how to find such Rob, Rob gadgets. I think because we are quite bad in time, I just skipped this. You can have a look at it after the talk. But the basic idea is that making syntax-based searches, like in this case here, there are many, many different possibilities to make the same behavior with, the, with another instruction. And you have to try out all of them to find one which is there in the program. And this is very time consuming. So what I was doing is I was just using PyEmu to emulate the gadgets and then store the behavior based to these gadgets. So for example, I just started this gadget, emulated this gadget several times with different starting registers, and then observed the behavior of it and stored the behavior uh, together with the gadget in the database. And then I can make behavior-based searches like, give me all gadgets which can be used to set this register to zero. So this uh, greatly reduces the workload. And now come to the first Emmet-related chapter. So uh, if you start Emmet, you would end up with this user interface. So in the upper part, you can um, configure global operating system-wide protections like data execution prevention or address-based optimization. You see here the running processes and which are protected by Emmet. And if you click the apps button, you can make pair process configurations. In this case, I have just enabled all protections for Firefox. And if I now start my Firefox exploit, you would see that Firefox just crashed. And at the right bottom, you see that Emmet detected that an attack is ongoing. In this case, the stack pivot mitigation technique detected this attack. So just remember for the later slides, the stack pivot mitigation detected uh, that an attack is ongoing. Before making, before talking about different bypass techniques, we have to make some general considerations. So what we really want to do is we want to protect against real-world attackers. So that means we have to think, think like a real-world attacker, because I don't want to protect against some very academic approaches, uh, uh, academic bypass techniques, which are just working against one specific operating system. So uh, what are the goals of real-world attackers? They want a bypass technique which works reliable, uh, against all different kinds of operating systems. So uh, if 100 uh, victims go to my website, I want that 100 victims are infected. Uh, and that means it, yeah, it must work against all operating systems and all service pack levels and against all Emmet versions, and even if Emmet is also not there. Another nice thing is that the exploit should uh, be easy to reuse. So for example, if I spend one month to develop all my bypass techniques, uh, for the Firefox vulnerability, I just want to make copy and paste if I later find a vulnerability in Internet Explorer or something like that. Like that. I don't want to spend another month to implement everything from, from scratch. So this last uh, thing brings us to the idea that we can build everything on top of Emmet DLL, because Emmet works by injecting its own library to all protected applications, and then it can uh, just hook functions, critical functions, and say, execute my own code before invoking this function. And if the check succeeds, invoke the function, if not, just terminate the, the, the application before doing anything else. And you see here, Emmet DLL is a great target to build everything on top of it, because if we have to bypass Emmet, we know Emmet DLL is always there. So if you uh, write everything based on Emmet DLL in, on Firefox, we know it's also there if I try to attack a dope reader or something like that. So the first step is that we find Emmet DLL in memory. Other researchers, for example, the researchers from offensive security, 
uh, also found ways to bypass Emmet, and the approach from offensive security also required that they found Emmet DLL first in memory. So I really recommend you that you have a look at the three uh, great blog posts of offensive security. I will later talk about their technique. But uh, what they were doing is they just assumed that one of the modules is important to get module handle functional. And then they are just writing a ROP chain which invokes this function and give it as argument emmet and this function would just return the image base of it. But the problem in this case is that uh, if, the uh, if the attacked application is not uh, importing this function, it's just, uh, just not applyable. And in addition, it adds uh, additional dependencies in some cases. So I then developed my own approach. I call this approach the hook approach. And yeah, as already mentioned, Emmet works by hooking critical functions. So some examples for critical functions are virtual alloc or virtual protect, because they can be used to disable data execution prevention. Other examples are WinExec, because of course you can uh, invoke any program, or load library, because you can use it to load an additional module from a Windows share, so from the attacker share. And this way, Emmet can implement some checks before invoking the function, like the, the stack pivot mitigation technique, which we already saw in the picture. So this, uh, the stack pivot mitigation technique just checks if the stack pointer is currently pointing to the stack or if it was shifted away to the heap. So in our case, we just shifted it away, and that's uh, exactly how Emmet detects that an attack is ongoing here. To understand the hook approach, we have, a, uh, have to make a look at the implementation of the virtual protect a function and how Emmet hooks this function. So this is the implementation inside kernel 32 of virtual protect. You see here, uh, this implementation is just forwarding execution. So this is the standard prolog, which is always there. This pop EVP line just reverts the standard prolog here, and then we're just making a jump to jump into the kernel base implementation of it. But if we protect now this application with Emmet, it would change, change this function and just places here a hook so it would just make, replaces the first, the, the standard prolog with a jump to its own code, and then replaces a random number of bytes with, an, with a breakpoint. And if we follow this jump, this hooking code, we come to code which is, was allocated by Emmet. And you see here, it's just pushing some, some arguments to the stack, and after that we make here a final call into Emmet delay. So what the hook approach tries to do is, it just follows, follows this first uh, hook, the first jump, until it comes to this location, and then just goes downwards and extracts the, the address, which is used as call target. And as soon as I have a pointer inside MDLL, I can just go downward until I find the P header, and uh, then I've extracted the image base. You see here, something other interesting, it's the third push value, this value here. This value points exactly to this location here. So because Emmet has copied away the, the old bytes, the old implementation of the function, and replaced them with the hooking code, Emmet has to store the old bytes somewhere in memory, and this is exactly the location where it stores the old bytes. This will be important uh, in the, uh, at a later moment, so just remember it. So this is a summary of the hook approach. I'm just resolving the the input address table entry of one of the critical functions. Then I can just read the first five bytes. If it's a move, if it's a move instruction, I know that Emmet is not there because this function is not hooked. That means I can just run the exploit without any Emmet bypasses. And if it's a jump, I just follow this jump until I find the image base, and yeah, then I'm done. You see here, this is a ROP chain which implements this. A quick question: Who of you already has written a ROP chain? Just raise your hand. Okay. 
I just go over very quickly over the first three lines and that everyone, everyone knows what's going on here. So this is the address which I write to the stack or to the heap. This address is a overwrites the return address. And at this address, these assembler instructions are stored. So it would basically just start executing these assembler instructions. It would execute a pop EAX because the stack pointer is currently pointing to this location. It would just take this value here and pop this value into the EAX register and then start executing the next line, which is this line. Here it would just make a move EAX EAX. That means um, I just popped the pointer to the virtual alloc uh, input address table entry into EAX. And with this line, I'm just resolving the input address table entry. And the next line would just move this content from the EAX register into the ED register using some push and pop because there was no move instruction and so on. So it would just continue doing this stuff. But you see here that I have used hard-coded values based on the Emmet version. So for example, if it's Emmet 4.1, I need to use this offset, and for Emmet 5.0, I need to use this, uh, this value. And the problem is that currently I don't really know which Emmet version is there. So this approach is very bad. So it would just work against, against one specific uh, Emmet version, which is not what we like. If I try to uh, target a local application, like a video play application or something like that, I really have to write a better ROP chain, but this is very, very complex because then I have to make conditional jumps inside a ROP chain and this increases the size a lot. But if you are dealing with a browser-like vulnerability, we can uh, apply this advanced code reuse technique. Basically, the idea of return data programming is that we reuse or abuse already existing code in the program. But if you are attacking a browser or a PDF reader or something like that, we know that there must be code related to handle um, data structures in JavaScript, for example, to handle strings. And the idea is now that we can just use a rock chain or directly the vulnerability to manipulate these data structures. So for example, we can just say that the string is now pointing to a new location and then return to JavaScript and implement everything in JavaScript. Uh, I later found out that this approach was already uh, public uh, discussed by Yang Yu uh, this year at Kensekwest, so have a look at this great talk if you want to find out more about this. Here are some examples. Uh, first example is that we can just manipulate the string and say that the string is now pointing to the hooking code, then we can implement the complete passing inside JavaScript. Another very nice example is the third example here. Uh, in this example, we can just say that the string starts at the code section of any loaded module, for example, emmet.dll. And the length field is set to the length of this code section. Then we can use functions, search functions like index of, to search inside this code section to dynamically find ROP gadgets. So we dynamically find the relative offset for this ROP gadget. So we can say, um, tell me the location where I can find a, find a pop pop return instruction. And that means I can just write my exploit for example Emmet 5.1. And if Microsoft later releases Emmet uh, 5.2 or something like that, uh, the exploit would just keep working because I dynamically find everything. So uh, uh, using this technique, I can write very reliable code. You see here, this is the implementation inside JavaScript. So I'm just calling this arbitrary leak bytes function, which um, returns me the string from the address of the virtual alloc function. And then I can just use access here, the bytes, and say, yeah, if it's a move instruction, uh, just 
run the exploit without any Emmet bypasses. And if it's a jump instruction, I know Emmet is there, so just follow this jump and just iterate until we find uh, the call instruction. So E8 would be the opcode of a call instruction. I'm just looping until I find this call instruction and then say, yeah, if it's this opcode, it's a sub-instruction. That means sub has a size of three, so just skip three bytes. If it's a push instruction, add five bytes and so on until I find the call instruction. And as soon as I have found the call instruction, I can read the PE header. And in this case, I'm just reading the checksum field and the timestamp field. And based on these values, I can identify which version of Emmet is there. So the, I now know which version of Emmet is there and the image base of it. Yeah, now come to the different uh, protections. As already mentioned, uh, Emmet contains five different return or data programming protections. And if we want to bypass these protections, we have three different possibilities, three different approaches. The first approach is that we can just bypass each protection separately. So this is described in this paper by Chart Dimot, uh, gives a great overview about it. Another idea is that we can use the trick developed by offensive security. So what they were doing is they just reversed MDLL and found out that there's a global flag and if this global flag is set to false, all protections are just disabled. So what they were doing is they just uh, wrote a short ROP chain which disables, which zeroes out this flag. I uh, then recommended during my talks that, um, uh, that Microsoft moves this flag to a read-only location because if it's read-only, they cannot override it. But uh, Microsoft has chosen another approach with MAT 5.0 they just encoded the pointer to the flag. But the problem is that decoding this pointer is quite easy inside the ROP chain. So in the second blog post from Offensive Security, they, um, they use this approach, they just decode the pointer and just apply the same technique. With the release of Emmet 5.1, Microsoft fixed it by uh, using a read-only section, as I mentioned. But uh, the problem now is that there's a third trick, so there's another trick which can be used to bypass Emmet. And what offensive security is now doing is, they're just using here this third trick to make this section, this, uh, this read-only section, writeable again, and then they can just apply the same trick by overwriting this flag. So as soon as this third trick is not patched by Microsoft, it's just possible to apply it again and again. But as soon as they would fix this, uh, this third trick, uh, it would really require us that we bypass each protection separately, which really puts a higher workload on the attacker. The third approach was developed by myself during my research, but I think uh, about the same time, offensive security also found this trick because it's quite easy to find. And here's the idea that we can just make direct system calls because Emmet is completely in user space. And if you just make a call directly to the kernel, Emmet has no way to, to somehow get in between of this and just uh, see that the attack is ongoing. I now talk about the different uh, protections separately and how we can bypass them, and at the end I just talk a little bit up about the tricks. Load library is the first protection, and here is the idea that uh, Emmet denies the attacker from loading additional modules from Windows shares. And uh, I didn't really have to bypass this one because I'm not loading any mo additional modules from Windows shares. But you can have a look at this bypassing all of the things talk by Arun Portnoy uh, if you want to see a bypass. But I think this was just working for MS 3.5. But yeah, finding a way around this would not be too hard. 
Another protection is the main protect protection. Here's the idea that um, functions like virtual protect and virtual alloc are prevented from making the stack executable because the stack should never ever contain executable code. And we can easily by be, uh, bypass this one by just making any other location uh, executable, for example, the heap. But this requires that we modify the ROP chain. So typically, we are quite lazy. We just use a tool such as Mona to generate the ROP chain. So in this case, this is the ROP chain which disables uh, data execution prevention. And this was generated using Mona. But the important fact here is that a push AD instruction is used to invoke this the, the virtual alloc function, and this would also push the arguments to the stack, and that means I don't have control over these arguments. So I now have developed my own ROP chain. In this case, I'm using a push instruction to invoke the function, and that means I have full control over all arguments and can just say that the address, the target address, is now pointing to the heap instead. I will come to this ROP chain a little bit later. The stack pivot mitigation technique was already mentioned. Uh, here's the idea that you that Emmet just verifies uh, if the stack point is pointing to the stack and was not shifted away. Because in my case, I just had to shift it away to the heap. To bypass this, we can just um, copy everything from the heap back to the stack before uh, invoking the critical function. You see here, this is the code to do this. It's not very interesting. Just in a while loop, I'm just copying everything there. And using an exchange, I just um, go from the heap to the stack. The color mitigation technique is a very interesting one because we have three different possibilities to invoke a function. So first of all, we can call a function. This is the valid case. But we can also jump to the start of the function or we can uh, make a fake function return. So we can push the function address, so we push the return address and directly making a return. That means it just jumps to this address here. And if we apply return data programming, we typically uh, are using this third approach here. And what Emmet is now doing is, if we make the valid case, uh, the allowed one, if we call a function, the call instruction would push the return address, so it would push the address of the next instruction, so this address here, to the stack, and Emmet can then read this, uh, this return address and just go backward and check if there's really a call to this function there. So this is what Emmet is doing. And if you are doing here the second or the third approach, there would be no such return address there, and that's how Emmet detects this attack. And we can bypass this one by just returning. Instead of returning directly to the function, we can return to a call of the function. So this approach was, uh, was developed by Chart Demot, and he was using this gadget here. So instead of directly returning to virtual alloc, we return to the start of this call here, to this location here. So if Emmet now goes backward, it would, so the return address would be this one here. So Emmet would just go here backward five bytes and check if this is a call and says, yeah, this is fine and the protection is bypassed. But I see some problems with this gadget here. So first of all, the addresses are, uh, if you have a look at the addresses, you see that's uh, from a Windows uh, library. And that means it would just work against one specific operating system against one specific uh, service pack level, which is bad because yeah, we cannot attack any other operating system. And you see here that there are many memory references there, which can maybe uh, lead to a segmentation fault. So this is quite bad because it's this call to the virtual alloc is quite far away from the, from the return. So what I was using instead is a gadget inside Emmet delay. And you see here, it's again a call to virtual protect. 
and you have just one memory reference here, but I can ensure that this is not crashing. After that, just a compare, and then I just take this jump, which le leads to a return, the return would go to the next gadget. But uh, what to do if there's no such gadget at all, which is very near the return? Uh, and what we can do is we can just use any call to any register. So in my ROP chain, I have here my push EAX, which this is um, making to the call to the function, and this just invokes this code here. So I'm making here a call to AD, and just ensures that AD is pointing to the target function which I want. So you see here, I'm just popping EAX, that means the next value is popped into EAX, this is what the address of the virtual alloc input address table entry, this line just resolves it, and with the exchange I'm just moving the value into the ED register, so I'm just ensuring that ED is pointing to this location, you see, also see it here, that ED is currently pointing to virtual alloc. And after that, there's just a jump, so this cannot uh, lead to a segmentation fault, and then I just take this jump, this goes here, and yeah, no memory reference at all, so this cannot uh, crash. The last ROP protection is SimExec flow, and it just brings the idea of the scholar mitigation technique, uh, it just applies this, uh, this technique uh, for all return addresses on the stack, so it just simulates execution forward and applies this technique again and again for all return addresses. But if we bypass call uh, mitigation, this, uh, this protection is also bypassed at the same time. Uh, during a later stage, uh, when I execute my shellcode, this mitigation technique also triggers because of my shellcode, and I then found out that I can just make a code to itself, so this code here just codes the pop instruction and then I pop the pushed return address. So this code is uh, exactly doing nothing but just confusing the simulation, uh, the, the forward uh, simulation. So this can be used to also bypass this protection mechanism. I now come to the trick which can be used to bypass uh, all these protections at, uh, at in one, in, at one time. And here's the idea that I can just make direct system calls. Because Emmet is completely in user space, you can just check user land functions. And if I make directly a call to the kernel, Emmet has no possibility to intercept this call. And the problem is here that hard coding system call numbers is bad because uh, from one operating system or from one service back level, the system call numbers changes. So I cannot hard code these values. So one approach could be that I write the ROP chain which first identifies the the version of the operating system at the service back level, and then use many hard-coded values for all different kinds of operating systems. But we have something better. If you have, again, a look how Emmet hooks a function, we see this one here. Uh, this is the implementation inside NTDLL. So if I invoke the virtual product function, it would call the implementation of it inside kernel 32. This would just forward the execution to the kernel base implementation, and the kernel base implementation just forwards execution to the NTDLL version, so to this version here. You see here the first line just moves the system call number into the EX register, and then the following two lines just make the call into the kernel. So uh, these two lines depend on the exact operating system. In this case, it's a 32-bit system. And if I follow this, you just see it leads to a sysenter. And if I now protect this, uh, this function with Emmet, it just does the same again. It just hooks the function, so it replaces the first byte with a jump. And if I follow this code, you see here that the third push argument points to this blue marked area here. So Emmet has just copied away these bytes to this location. And the problem is that I can 
get this base address by just adding some relative offsets. So it's very easy to find this base address here. Then I can just extract the push, uh, push argument. This points to this location. And I can directly jump to this location. So I can just jump over all protections from Emmet, execute this, uh, the, the system call, and just return to my next gadget. You see here, this is the implementation of it. This is a little bit more complex ROP chain. So I don't want to go into too much detail here. But yeah, it's so big because it's finding first itself in memory and then modifying itself. That's why it's so big here. Now come to the last mitigation technique. It's the export address table access filtering. The idea here is that shellcode typically has to pass a field which is called the address of functions field inside the PE header of modules such as the kernel, kernel 32, kernel base or entity LL module to locate functions such as load library or get process uh, address. And what Emmet is doing is it just places hardware breakpoints on this field here. And as soon as one instruction is trying to read this field, this, uh, the breakpoint is, is triggered and Emmet code kicks in and can do additional checks. For example, it can check if the instruction belongs to a loaded module, then it's valid. And if it's not belonging to a loaded module, for example, it's stored on the heap, it's most likely from a shellcode and that means uh, execution can be, uh, can be terminated. And we have again many, many different ideas how this protection can be bypassed. So first of all, we can just use again a ROP chain because then the instruction is from a loaded module or we can use some other techniques. But the problem with the first three techniques is that we have to modify the shell code when we use this technique. And because exploit developers are typically very lazy, we can use this, uh, this last approach here. We can just say, remove all the breakpoints before executing our own shell code. And to remove the breakpoints, we have again many different uh, uh, possibilities. So uh, the main approach was uh, developed by PNGR Benia. You can have a look at his blog posts here. But the problem is that he was using hard-coded system call numbers. So he's using the set thread context and the anti-continuous system call to do it. So what I was doing then was I uh, just used the API instead and just returned to a location inside Emmet.dll which called this API function. But since Emmet 5.0, Emmet is also hooking these functions, so it's not possible to apply this technique anymore unless we first disable all protections using the approach from offensive security. But I think this is no, in the next releases of Emmet, this will not be possible to apply, and that's not, that's why I think it's not so interesting here. So the first approaches are just using the, the system code numbers, but the downside is that this would just work against one specific operating system and service back. Then I have here some other uh, techniques, but uh, for the newest version of Emmet, they are not so interesting, so I just skip them. So it's just some methods to do it. But I think the most uh, interesting one is that we can just jump over the, all the hooks to directly invoke the system call, as mentioned in the ROPS chapter. So this technique has no uh, disadvantage. It works against all Windows versions, against all service packs, and against all Emmet versions. Yeah, and now come to the final thoughts. Uh, Emmet has many, many more uh, protections, but I think uh, these two protections, the raw protections and the EIF, are the most interesting one from the technical perspective. Uh, other protections are, for example, the text service reduction, where you can say, 
that uh, you can just load Java from the intranet, but not from the internet. Another one is, for example, uh, Certificate Trust, which verifies the certificates, or SEOP. But SEOP just protects the exception handlers. It's from the, uh, from the operating system. But as soon as you can bypass address-based legitimization, SEOP is easily be bypassed. Then heap spray mitigation and null page pre-allocation. Uh, it's very easy to bypass these ones. It's, the tactic is to just use a, an address which is not protected by Emmet. So if you want to find out more about this, just have a look at my slides from the RuxCon, but I think it's not so interesting. Mandatory address-based randomization and bottom-up randomization just increase the functionality of address-based randomization. But if you can bypass address-based randomization, these are bypassed, uh, can also be bypassed. And EF plus is an interesting protection because it should pr uh, protect my current exploit, my current version of the exploit, but it doesn't. I don't really know why, but we are currently discussing this situation with Microsoft. But even if it would protect against my current version of the exploit, it would not be too hard to extend the exploit to also bypass this one. I have here a quick recap. Uh, just a few just skip this one here, it's just a summary of what I have told you today. Yeah, we from Second Side would really advocate to work together with Microsoft on improving the resilience of further Emmet releases. We have many, many different ideas how Emmet can be improved, but of course no protection is 100% bulletproof. A fear a demonstration video, you can see the exploit in action. See here, everything is green, so all protections are enabled, Firefox is protected. Then you see here, uh, all protections are enabled. If you click the advanced options tab, you see that the export address table access filtering plus protection is configured correctly. And if I now start Firefox with the old exploit without the bypasses, you see that it's crashing and Emmet detected that the attack is ongoing. And if I restart Firefox and refresh the task list, see it's still protected. And if I now use the one with the bypasses, you see that calculator spawns up. And you also see that Firefox is not crashing, so you can just execute the, the exploit again and again, and yeah, victim really notes nothing, that there is something ongoing. I have here a summary about the workload. So writing the initial exploit without any ML bypasses was quite easy. So it just took me about three to five days. I think if you really try to make it very fast, you can do it in one day. But yeah, I was, I was doing this in my free time. So I was watching TV and stuff like that while I'm doing this. So it just took me three days. Yeah, And then writing the first bypass really was high effort, I can't estimate and can't tell you how long it took, but you see here the exploit code had, has about 5,000 lines of code, so it's really huge. So it took me really much time, but uh, my idea was that I just developed many, many different ideas to bypass uh, these mitigation techniques, so I just showed you here some of the techniques which can be used, and that means I can just configure, so uh, if at the time Emmet updated itself to uh, 5.0, 
it was quite easy to mitigate the migrator exploit. It just took me five minutes because I just had to configure to use other techniques and uh, add four lines of code because I had to pass two additional uh, sample instructions. So I'm passing there the sample instructions and saying if it's a push, it has a size of five and just had to add two of such instructions. And the same uh, applies for the release of Emmet 5.1. So this is the current version of it. Uh, it took me about 40 minutes because they tried to break my scan down approach. So I'm leaking a pointer to Emmet delay and from this point, I just go downward until I find the B header. And you see it here on the next slide. So these are the sections of Emmet. This is the P header, and this is the text section. So I have a pointer inside this text section. And then I just go downwards, so here, uh, to this location um, to find the B header. And you see that there is no gap in between. So if you add to this base address here the size, which is 1,000, you would end up exactly with this address here. So it's exactly the address of the text section. The same applies for Emmet 5.0. So if you add up here this one, you come up to the next address. And what Emmet was then doing in Emmet 5.1 was that if I now add here this 1000, I don't come to this text section, so there's a, a hole in between with unmapped memory. And if I try to scan down, I just access this unmapped memory, that means I'm just segmentation folding. So what I'm doing instead is just search for the start of the text section, and then I can just uh, subtract the relative offset of it to reach the uh, P header. Or I don't really have to extract the P header at all. So it's quite easy to bypass this one. You see here, it's also working against the newest version of Emmet. Just verified two days ago that this is the actual version. Yeah, here you have some contact information, uh, and just remember that we are currently searching for new employees, so if you're interested, you can just drop me a mail or send to our office a mail. Yeah, thank you for your attention, and if you have any questions. Thank you for this very nice talk, René. Uh, if you have any questions, please do line up at the six microphones we have here at the ground level. Um, while you're doing this, a quick announcement. Uh, today at 5 p.m. at the Ferry Dust Rocket in front of the building, there will be a meeting for the Freiheit statt Angst, the Freedom Not Fear demonstration. If you want to join them, just go down there at 5 p.m. today. We have a question at microphone number two. Okay, thanks for the very interesting talk. Um, what I wanted to know, so you said that after the ROP chain, you can return execution to JavaScript, right? Yeah. That's I have it on the slide that this requires um, some conditions. So it must be able to trigger the vulnerability without crashing the application. And of course, you need some scripting support. So if you attack a local application, it's not applyable. OK, but, but yeah. the, the question is, what if uh, the ROP gadgets you are using uh, changes the value of some Kali saved uh, registers? Because uh, then it could like, spoil the execution of the rest of the, you know, the environment, JavaScript environment. Uh, sorry, again, I didn't get So it. if one of your ROP gadgets yeah. changes the value of a Kali saved register, it will not be restored when you return. And so it, there's the risk to spoil the execution of the JavaScript environment. Uh, what I'm doing is I just fix everything before returning. So uh, I really just touch the, the uh, in this case, I'm just 
touching the data structure. But you don't really have to execute a ROP gadget at all. You can just use direct data vulnerability in this case. So for example, uh, I have really abstracted many things away from this presentation to make it very basic. But what you can do is with the vulnerability, you can directly, instead of executing a ROP chain, you can directly write to memory. So you don't really have to use a ROP chain to write to memory at all. So for example, if I go a little bit back here, So you see here the second, the second example in this case. Ah. Here. Here in this second example uh, tells you that you can use this advanced code reuse technique to write to memory. So what you can do is, um, you can generate uh, an array in memory and redirect the writes of this array to overwrite the, the data structures, for example. So don't really have to execute a ROP chain at all. Thank you. Are there any more questions? There is a question from our signal angel on IRC. Yes, uh, is Emmet often in use as a companies? Uh, I didn't really see it very often because the problem is with the compatibility. So for example, if I'm using it at home, my Firefox is just crashing all three or four days because Emmet says that there's an attack, but in reality there's no attack, so it uh, has a high false positive rate. And I think that's the main problem of it. But yeah, and I also think that's a problem that it's not so easy to deploy it in the domain. So yes. Thank you. Any more questions? Yes, microphone number two, please. Uh, do you consider Windows secure to operate in a corporation, organizations? Sorry? Uh, Would you recommend deploying Windows within organizations? Windows? Yes. Uh, it's hard to say, but in <laughs> my opinion, yeah. In my opinion, in the basic configuration, Windows is harder to exploit than Linux, because uh, in Linux you have to to compile, <laughs> because in my opinion, you have to, uh, in, in Linux, you have to add the compiler flag for Py for position independent executables. That address based serialization is really effective. So if you just compile an executable uh, in Linux, it's not relocated to, another, to a, another location. So the code section will be always at the same location. And the problem is that many standard uh, applications are have not address-based anything enabled there. And this situation is better on, on Windows. But of, yeah, it just depends. Because if more people are using Windows, the attackers try to attack Windows and yeah. Any more questions? Uh, no. It seems like we have two uh, additional questions from, from IRC. Yeah. Um, uh, have you tested this technique? Uh, with other exploits? Uh, I have tested this with a test, with a test application for myself, and I also verified that it is working for, uh, for a VLC exploit. But with other uh, browser exploits, I didn't really test this because I know it's just working because, um, because uh, I have built everything based on Emmet DLL. But in this case, uh, this special vulnerability really allows me to do it much stuff because I can just read from memory, I can write to memory as I like, and I'm not crashing anything. So I can just rig it again and again. So in this case, it's quite easy to do it. If you really have to bypass um, 
a local application like VLC or something like that, everything becomes a little bit harder because you cannot apply this advanced code reuse technique so that you cannot execute JavaScript code inside a local application. And that means you have to implement everything inside a ROP chain, and that means everything becomes really hard because you then have to make conditional jumps to ensure that it works reliable against all different kinds of operating systems, but it's still possible. We have another question from microphone number three. Hey, thank you for the presentation. Are there any plans to implement some of those protections on the kernel side? I mean, I've seen RopeGuard and Sentinel by core and Emat, everything is implemented on the user space. Uh, some of those protection, I assume, and I know could be implemented kernel. I just want to know why. Uh, just know that Emmet implements the null page protection. This is a protection for kernel vulnerabilities, but I'm not aware of other tools which implement anything in kernel for Windows. So, sorry, don't know. Another question from our signal angel. Um, yes, uh, isn't the added size of exploit code, uh, 400 lines of code with em without Emmet and 5,000 uh, with Emmet, uh, a huge win in terms of added complexity? Yeah, that's, I think that's the idea of Emmet. Uh, what they say it is, that they know that uh, Emmet can be broken, but they just want to add additional workload for the attacker. So uh, if I would be an attacker and uh, 100 person go to my website and just one person has Emmet enabled, I, would not make, I think it would not make any sense to add bypasses for Emmet because it's just one person which I miss. But uh, if more persons would use Emmet, I would add this work, additional workload. But uh, in these 5,000 lines of code, I really have implemented many, many bypass techniques. So if you just want to bypass it one time, it's quite easy. For example, the exploitation code from offensive security has about 300 lines of code or something like that, and can also bypass Emmet. But in my case, 5,000 lines of code were generated because I have implemented about six or 10 methods to bypass each protection. So that's why it's so much. I think we have no further questions from the audience. Thank you, René Freingruber.